The Scream Kings are in no way responsible for any encounters with the paranormal, extraterrestrial abductions, eldritch insanity, hauntings, curses, hexes, demonic possessions, cryptozoological sightings, or any loss of sleep that results from listening to this podcast. everyone for our very very special 50th episode of the Scream Kings podcast. I honestly am a bit surprised we made it here. <laughs> what are you um, saying, Max? Mm. <laughs> Today we have a very exciting guest on the episode to commemorate this awesome occasion. Um we'd like to introduce Andy Gale. Uh Andy, do you want to tell our guest Kind of, who are you? Why we have you on the podcast? Sure, you know, um, I, I, I would say just sheer pluck and moxie. I assume is, is why I'm here. But yeah, I, uh, I'm a professor of cinema uh, at the Denver. I specialize in the horror genre, um, particularly representations of, of youth in uh, the horror genre, so rebellious youth, monstrous youth, that sort of thing. I, you know, I've uh, been a professor for about 15 years now, and uh, before going into academia, I was uh, a journalist. So um, my newspaper folding is kind of what, what took me back to grad school, uh, as a lot of people were kind of exiting that industry. Uh, <clears throat> I started as a literature scholar. Um, I, I was never uh, really thinking about film until I took a really great film class in my master's that kind of turned me around. Um, initially, I was going to be writing about Shirley Jackson uh, and The Haunting of Hill House, some of those kind of 50s Southern Gothic um, writers, especially women who were kind of ambivalent about domesticity. Um, I, I just tweet a whole yeah. bunch because Shirley Jackson is the best. She's <laughs> uh, one of my favorites. You know, I, I just – such a what's funny, you know, I don't know if you've ever read her memoir. Uh, I think it's called Life Among the, the Savages. It's all about her not really ever wanting children, you know, and kind of being – kind of forced into this life. And a lot of a lot of her writing kind of I think witnesses that, you know, that just sort of being trapped by the home is this kind of kind of a consistent theme in her writing. So, you know, I say I stay focused on the fifties. I I mostly consider myself a historian who looks at film. Um and I get really interested in um the the figure of the monstrous child because it's it's a post war creation, you know. Um we don't really have any instances of it before uh the nineteen fifties. And so I was really interested in why, what what makes us go to movies about evil kids. Actually, one of the, it's kind of one of the, the strongest subgenres of horror and most lucrative. And so I kind of just approached it with, um, well, what do we get out of it? You know, what do we, what do adults who go to movies about evil kids like? What do we get out of those stories? Um, and that was the, my dissertation, and that became my first book, uh, The Revolting Child in Horror Cinema. Uh, yeah, so I kind of hopped around a little bit, on in DC, and now I'm uh, in Denver. And maybe talk to us a little bit more about that first book, The Revolting Child in Horror Cinema. What does it mean? I mean, of course, on this ep- or on the show, we talk a lot about movies that have, you know, demonic kids, your Reagans or your Damians. Take it, take it a little bit further. What exactly do you mean when it comes to these identities, these horror kind of children? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, and um, <clears throat> I, I think. It's kind of an under-theorized area, evil children, even though it's such a popular subgenre. 
I, I think the, um, the sort of initial step to look at the evil child in film is to say basically what these, these children do is they offer us kind of a, an end run around the social taboo against child abuse, right? They give us very childlike bodies who aren't really children. You know, they're demons, they're aliens. Um, I mean, you they're bring up Antichrist. Regan. Yeah, exactly. That, and that's a really classic narrative of that kind of midwitch cuckoo that I'm raising a child that's not mine, right? And I mm -hmm. have to reject. And the failure in all these cases is that they're too maternal, you know? Um, <laughs> it's the failure of the living dead, right? She can't attack her own daughter, and that is kind of this sort of failure that leads to her death. So, so I use that as kind of a baseline. I think it's true that a lot of these these films kind of allow us to pleasurably engage with uh, with child abuse, and I in fact encourage it. Something like The Exorcist. I, I like to point out that the film uh, makes a point that uh, Father Karras is a boxer, and it shows us training as a lead up to the ending, which is him punching a 14-year-old girl in the face in order to save her. Even something like Child's Play, the, um, the doll, which is a very childlike body, is costumed in exactly the same way as the child in the film, right? And so all of this kind of acts of violence against the doll, I think we're supposed to understand them as also sort of symbolically towards the child or any children. So that was the starting point. Uh, and, I, and I do think that there's a sort of pedophobic undercurrent to those films. However, when I watched The Exorcist, um, and thinking about my own spectatorship, I, I know that the film wants me to be disgusted when Regan vomits on a priest, but I think it's hilarious, right? <laughs> uh, and so me investigating that, well, obviously I'm doing some kind of like oppositional reading, right? I don't think the film's pushing me that way. So what is it? What's going on? Is it because I'm a last Catholic? Is it because of a regional identity? Is it about my sexual identity? Like, what is it? So I pushed on that last one. I said, okay, what if there's something really queer um, and pleasurable about Regan uh, that when she bumps on the priest, I'm, I'm finding it really, I don't know, something deep and very pleasurable. The same way I find it really pleasurable when Carrie White revolts, right? Um, mm -hmm. and, and, and so the more I kind of poked at that, I thought, if you look at the types of evil children, you have the child who harbors a dark secret, like the bad seed, uh, the child who's not mine, and I have to raise it like uh, Village of Sand or The Omen, um, the child who has to go out and find others like them, like uh, Children of Corn, right? Um, or uh, something like The Exorcist, which is, you know, it's, uh, it's a child who becomes a monster in adolescence, and the parents can't recognize it anymore. And I said, look, these are all ways that we talk about a queer child, for which there's really no vocabulary. Uh, in culture, and I think it comes uh, out this way as the child gone wrong. So it comes out in horror cinema as a way that we kind of manage this queer child and, and all that it represents. Well, and I really enjoyed what you said about, you know, you, you saw something in The Exorcist that was intended to make you revolt, and instead you really, right. you enjoyed it. <laughs> and that made you kind of reflect on, well, why? And, and I think that's the power in horror movies that we often overlook is a lot of times we're faced with these dark situations that day by day we're not really facing, and then we see it in a film, and it makes yeah. us contemplate on, well, why did I identify with this movie a certain way? <laughs> I, I just thought that was very profound, what you just said. You know, it, for me, I would agree, you know, it's a, it's a rejection of authority, it's a rejection of religion, however you want to look at that, and, and how can I continue to see that in other movies and you know why do i identify more with 
you know, a demonic genre of movies versus slasher, or why does someone prefer the supernatural over serial killers? I, I think there's a lot of pathos there that we could uncover. Yeah, you know, when I teach um, horror, the horror genre as a class, the first assignment I have my students do, I call it an autoethnography, which is what are you afraid of? What doesn't scare you? Uh, is anything too much for you? And, you know, where do you think you acquired these things? And, and what do you think it says about you? You know, it, it's really important, I think, for scholars especially, but yeah, I think sort of moviegoers to think about how we also bring ourselves to the movies, right? Um, and that two people can watch the same film and have a completely different experience, right? I could over-identify with the villain in a way that wasn't intended. Uh, and that's, you know, cinema. It's, it's an offering to the audience to create meaning. And and I think that that happens way more often than not, especially with the horror genre. You know, that's why the most iconic mm-hmm. characters tend to be the villains. You know, Freddy Krueger and, you know, Jason and, and you know, the, the Hannibal Lecter. You know, we, we care more about those characters than we care about the people that, that you know, go up against them. And in terms of a franchise, they're the only ones that go from film to film, right? Mm-hmm. The victims are just, so really they're kind of the protagonists uh, of the franchise. So with all of this in uh, mind, I I want to know what is your favorite horror movie, Andy? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I speaking of uh, Shirley Jackson uh, and and my love for her and my love for fifties Cold War culture, um, I love The Haunting, um, Robert Watts. Haunting. Uh, I think it is, I think The Haunting and The Innocence from right around the same era um, really kind of created the grammar of the Haunted House film. And I think every Haunted House film to like The Conjuring today is kind of just reproducing that aesthetic. Or um, trying to. Or trying desperately. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> do it really well. I look at something like The Others where I'm like, oh, you get it. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. you. And that sort of gothic suspense. And I'm I'm a sucker for um, we call it the night governess story, like going back to Turn of the Screw, where um, is something happening or are, are they crazy? I'm I'm a sucker for that type of narrative. Um, I think it's a complex script to write. I think uh, Honey Hill House does it well. I think the others does it so well. Um, the orphanage, you know, they're they're filmed in that kind of uh, mad governess genre that I think you you have to put a lot of balls in the air at once. Um, and I also love The Haunting because it does so much without showing you anything, you know. Um, I, I think I think a jump scare is easy. I think anybody could write a jump scare, but to write suspense is tough. It's a really hard thing to write. Definitely. Yeah, we've, we've talked a lot about jump scares and how they're kind of just a an easy throwaway, really. And, and you get too many and you start to expect them, it really weakens the amount of horror. It's, it's, it's horror's equivalent of tickling you. <laughs> There's some stuff I want to tell you for an hour and a half, um, which is horrible. I just, I, I think they're uh, like a genre equivalent of like junk food, you know? It's like you get that adrenaline rush, but it goes real fast. I always like Hitchcock's definition of suspense. He talks, he talks about the bomb under the table, and he says, look, you can two characters talking uh, or on, uh, at the table talking, and a bomb goes off, and you get a 10-second scare. That's a jump scare. Um, or you show the audience the bomb, and then you have the characters talk about baseball for 10 minutes, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like the, the, the audience is paralyzed, right? They can't do anything. They have the information that the uh, protagonist doesn't, and that creates that really kind of great suspense dynamic. Yeah, I mean, 
yeah, along those lines, you know, Hitchcock was was a master of that. You know, with with like you know with Psycho, we see Norman Bates, yep. you know, peeping through the <laughs> the wall and all that. Like we know he has sinister intent before he does anything. I I, I agree and I don't. I mean, it's it's the advertising campaign for Psycho. It well, a we should say that Norman Bates was like a pinup boy for the era. He was like the Zac Efron of mm-hmm. of his age. such base and sexuality. And so the advertising I think is really smart because it makes them look like the victim. That's the great red herring of Psycho is that we feel sorry for him because he seems so victimized by his mother. And I think that the film also depletes any anxiety uh, or a lot of anxiety around Norman because it codes him as queer. And because Hitchcock codes Norman based as queer, we don't feel him as a sexual threat to Marion Crane, which is why it's so kind of shocking. I guess moving away from that, so, you know, we, we had you talk about your favorite horror. What is the scariest horror uh, film that you've ever seen? Yeah, I mean, so I, I, I do full disclosure with my students, and I say, you're going to write this um, autoethnography. Here's mine. Um, <laughs> I'm tariffs, paralysis films, immobilization, home invasion, but, but specifically ones in which I, you can't move your body. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, and I, it's because I'm epileptic, and just the thought of being out of control in my body is a very terrifying thing to me. Um, and to see that in horror films is, is always a really kind of daunting experience. I'll give you two. One is firmly within the horror genre, and then one that's not even really considered a horror film at all, but I just find it terrifying. Um, the first one is The Descent, is one of those really white-knuckle experiences I had in the theater. Um, just the idea of being trapped underground in a cave, horrifying being lost. That's a kind of nightmare scenario. I don't know if you guys uh, are fans of The Descent or not. Oh, yes. I, mm-hmm. I adore The Descent. Yeah, we we did an episode of it a while back. Great movie. And I, I, I just find that the whole idea of, of these babies being, being buried alive is one of the worst things I can imagine, you know? So the non-horror film that terrifies me is actually Gravity. Oh, um, gravity I had is a, horrifying. Isn't it though? Yeah. I, I just, there's that moment where she's um, untethered and she's just spinning yeah. endlessly. And, yeah. And that is a full nightmare. It makes it, my skin crawl thinking about it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like it's like being trapped in your own coffin, you know, until you starve to death. And in a so way, it's, it's being buried alive in a different way. You know, you're just floating out in this void of space. It, oh. Yeah. I call it, it's, it's like if, um, it's like if claustrophobia and agoraphobia had a baby. Like that, <laughs> that would be. <laughs> I love like it. In, trapped in this, yeah. I, I, I actually got nauseous a little bit during that film just thinking about it. That's the worst thing I can imagine. Fair enough. <laughs> so, so um, one thing that we, we like to ask uh, all of our guests is just kind of how you got into horror in the first place. You know, where... Where did your journey begin on, on, you know, becoming a horror fan? You know, was it as a kid or, you know, as as a teenager? You know, kind of where did you first uh, encounter horror that, in a way that grabbed you? You know, I, I, I give a lot of thought to this because, um, you know, I, I, I remember watching Mac on Elm Street. I remember that film really striking me and exciting me. I remember being horrified by Poltergeist 2, uh, particularly that, that creature character who looked you know, sickly and gone. But I also remember I was reading when when I was younger, like when I feel like other kids were reading um, 
Oh, I don't know. Lord of the Rings. I was reading. I was reading Clive Barker. Me um, too. There's something about it, man. His stuff is just so weird, and um, and just I don't. I guess as a kid, I wasn't really thinking along these lines, but uh, there's just something he does about like almost in that Cronenberg way, where your body is malleable. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and and boundaries between you and other people were constantly being overlapped or taken away. There's something just so unusual about his writing that I was really drawn to. Oh, go ahead, Nathaniel. I was just, just going to say, clarifying question. Are we talking like Hellbound Heart and Books of Blood, Clive Barker, or are we talking like his kind of more YA stuff, like Imagica and uh, Beats of All Always? I, I read Six Always. I started the Imagica. That really, I think, wasn't what I was drawn to with him. I definitely started with Hellbound Heart and Books of Blood. Um, I remember the Great and Secret Show being making a huge impression on me. That's the one that that I I, I really remember. But there was this um, well, there was this short story in one of them, one of the Books of Blood, I think, where it was um, a gay couple, which was uh, very unusual. Um, I think it's called In the Hills in the Mountains. Um, I that- still think about it. That That's story weird, is terrifying. And, and and just to kind of give you a brief, it's um, this gay couple who are having an argument, driving across the country, and one of them just gets out of the car and walks away. And he finds this giant that is just made out of, like, pulleys and levers with all these people's bodies, but it's alive. And the, the story ends with him choosing to become part of it, which I think is so interesting. His, like, desperation to be part of something was so overriding that he became and I think Clive Barker has a very kind of twisted way. I, I don't know. When I, I think Clive Barker and I think his books, of course, they are fairly overtly sexual when they need to be. Mm-hmm. But also there is this kind of subtle, kind of fetish, kind of twist oh, yeah. of the story. And I think as an adolescent, you know, that is so taboo to the point where, you know, you're told not to to do it. And as a Catholic or as a Mormon, I would I would imagine we have that same kind of story. And so you get it in a horror medium, though, and it almost becomes a craving. But you, you want it because it's, mm-hmm. it's helping you identify kind of what you like and what you don't like, in a sense. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, you're right. It's sort of like, uh, like sexual identity tourism, in a way. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so that was probably my, my entry is, is reading um, those novels and being struck by them. And you know, not until like years later did I even know he was gay. Um, but then, of course, that, that all makes sense, you know, in mm-hmm. terms of, yeah, what, what I was drawn to. So in, in tandem to that then, Andy, is there a piece of literature or a book um, that is kind of within the horror genre that really calls to you? Mm-hmm. And if that's Clive Barker, I, I know you're an English professor by trade, of course. Yeah. So just curious. For me, I, I mean, I I love teaching Frankenstein, uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. In fact, I, I based a whole film, film adaptation class around the Frankensteinian, you know, the Frankenfilms. And, um, you know, I, I think for the time, um, she's really writing the first piece of science fiction, the first piece of speculative fiction, um, taking the, the actual science of the day and then saying, well, what if? You know, what if power goes unchecked? What if this is possible? Uh, what would the world be? And, and it's a book that I have read, you know, probably uh, 40 times, and I always see something new. 
it's a, it's a book that's written in such a modern way, you know, it's, um, it, it starts with this framing narrative and then we hear how Victor creates the monster and then we change narration perspective and we see the same events play through the monster's perspective and then those two things unify in Act 3. It's a really modern way to write and I don't think many other people were doing that, you know, in the 18th century. So that is a, an absolute favorite. Um, I also love to teach the turn of the screw. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think it's a really great psychological portrait of this woman who is so sexually repressed that she can't even see that these children have been sexually abused, you know, that she concocts this fantasy of a haunting, uh, of a possession, to explain why these children are so adult-like. Uh, and I think deconstructing that from a psychological perspective is so interesting. Yeah, it's fascinating, for sure. So those I would definitely put up there in the kind of classic categories. We already talked about um, The Haunting Hill House, which I adore. Um, and I love a lot of other Shirley Jackson and other, other writing as well. So segueing from that, talk to us a little bit more about kind of the classes you offer. You've mentioned, you know, you, you ask uh, students about their fears and what doesn't scare them and kind of see where their limits are. And then this whole Frankenstein unit, um, Nathaniel and I are moving to Denver so we can take your classes. <laughs> um, for, for the foreseeable future, everything's going to be online, so you can just join us. Um, um, okay, we will talk after. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean, I'm a generalist. You know, if you needed me to teach uh, Indian cinema, um, I would say give me three weeks. Let me phone up, but I could, <laughs> I could definitely teach it. But uh, yeah, I, I tend to do. Uh, I teach a class on Cold War cinema. I teach a class on horror, obviously. I teach a class on um, film censorship, which is really interesting. Oh. Uh, and we have really fascinating discussions in that class because, of course, the campus is such a battleground for censorship right now. Um, and it's a really, um, it's a really useful way to kind of think about. Um, how uh, the tactics, tactics of both conservatives and liberals look very same, <laughs> look very similar when it comes to um, shutting down discourse. And so that, that's always been a really fruitful class. And we, by nature, we dip into some pretty graphic horror uh, in that class. Um, we do Wolf Creek. We do Sallow, 120 Days of Sodom uh, in that class, which yeah. is um, one of the more challenging films uh, I've ever taught, but also one of the best discussions I've ever had. It's pretty fantastic. It's a powerful, uh, but that, very dark movie. Very dark, right? And, you know, it, it, it's one of those movies that is about the mechanisms of power and the terrible things that people can do, but it doesn't seem to have the fetishistic gaze of something like Hostel that seems to revel in the thing that it's seeming to critique, you know? Right. It's brutal for brutal sake. There's yeah. sometimes cruelty has no metaphor behind it, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And and and, and it's how it's filmed so clinically, uh -huh. right? Um, so there seems to be no invitation to um, kind of experience it on a spectacle level or in a way that that might allow us some distance. It is we're cold witnesses, you know, to the stuff. And, it, and it's not just the savagery of. Uh, I always say to my students when we watch the film, like, which is more terrifying? Is it the savagery of um, spontaneity or is it the savagery of order? And mm. for that film, it's a order, right? It's, it's terrifyingly ordered. Uh, and, and that's what makes the film, I think, so impactful. To pick 
piggyback off of that, Andy, I, I'm curious, as a professor of film, why do you think horror is so important in today's society? I mean, you mentioned a little bit about the censorship um, and whether you're right or left censor, censoring. Uh, how does horror in general and the genre itself apply to today? I mean, 2020, and it's essentially a horror movie itself. <laughs> Yeah, no, you're right. It, well, depending on, on you know, what side you're on, I, I think some people are kind of doing very well. I, I think these uh, behind-the-scenes work that the Trump administration is doing to consolidate power uh, in the hands of big business, I think people, some people will come out of this unscathed. It's a really fascinating time for horror. I, I don't think we can underestimate the impact of, of Get Out um, in that we're, we're getting kind of minorities in the writing chair, in the directing chair. And um, in a way that kind of harkens back to 60s and 70s paranoid horror, you know, we're thinking about what it feels like to be a minority in majority culture. And, and um, the conspiracy mode is a really great allegorical way to talk about white privilege, to talk about systemic racism. One of my favorite critics, Lucy Fisher, calls um, genre movies um, allegories of the real, which, which I always like, right? And because some, some things are ineffable by design, right? White privilege is designed to be invisible. So we need films like Get Out to give it form and to give it flesh in order to talk about it. And and I think with Get Out, what makes it so powerful is that a lot of the angle that it's coming from is, you know, from, from a side that is looking, you know, at, um, you know, this minority group as almost like a, uh, an, an appeal, like 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 as as something that is extra appealing. Like, yeah, mm -hmm. they would vote for Obama for a third term. They would, you know, they 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 don't want to be white anymore. They want to feel black so they could be black. Like, I think yeah. that is such an an interesting take on on that approach to white privilege and and that yeah. mentality. I describe Get Out as a movie about white people who like black music but don't like black people. You know. Oh no! <laughs> it's so perfect, though. <laughs> it's a real kind of not in my backyard, you know, kind of takedown of liberal whiteness, right? Mm -hmm. um, that will vote for Obama, but um, you know, don't uh, don't want to support black businesses in their neighborhood, you know. So I and I think it's such a smart movie in that it takes an existing structure. It's essentially separate lives, you know, which was about anxiety on the part of uh, second wave feminism about losing control of their bodies, right, uh, in the debate of Roe versus Wade. And it updates it and thinks about it through uh, a lens of race, which I, I think is so brilliant. Awesome. Um, this has been incredible. Thank you, Andy. <laughs> um, Nathaniel, any other specific questions come to mind? I, I, I just wanted you to talk a little bit, because you talked a little bit about your first book, but I know that you have another book, and uh, you've also, like, were in this, um, were interviewed for the film Scream Queen. So right. I just wanted yeah. you to share some about those. <laughs> yes, I would love to plug that film. I'm, I'm so proud of um, these guys. So, so Roman and Tyler, who are the directors of the film uh, Scream Queen, My Nightmare on Elm Street, basically what they did is that they caught up um, with this man, Mark Patton, who was the star of Nightmare on Street 2, and mm -hmm. he went into exile after this film because he was a closeted gay man when this film was made, and uh, lo and behold, this film has a fairly obvious queer subtext to it. Um, I like to say it's just text. It's so <laughs> on the surface. Um, 
<laughs> on Nathaniel, first time he watched it, he didn't pick up on any of that. <laughs> I, I'm just real straight, guys. I'm sorry. Robe thing in. The jock strap. Yeah. Remember, go back and watch it, too. One of my favorites to point out is um, in the kitchen, there's um, a rooster, like these sort of like copper tins that you know you put chili molds in, in or whatever. One of them is a rooster, and the other looks like basically a dick and balls. And so it's like cock and balls on the kitchen hall. There's a lot of fun stuff in this. So, so the film, um, The Screen Queen, is kind of, um, kind of an investigation uh, uh, into the queerness in the film, its afterlife as this sort of cult, um, cult object among queer fans, um, even though the film is pretty obviously homophobic. You know, it says, look, uh, you just need the love of a good woman to cure you of your, your monstrous queerness. But even so, you know, queer fans have kind of embraced it in, their, in an ironic way. And then it also follows Mark Patton and kind of like explores um, him coming to terms with this role that ends his career, um, what he experienced in Hollywood during the 1980s. Uh, it was a revelation to me. Um, Mark talked about how uh, in the 80s, if you got cast for a soap opera, they would give you a blood test to make sure you didn't have AIDS. I've never uh, heard before. So it's doing a lot of really important historiography about. Um, the Hollywood Closet uh, in the 1980s. So all of that's been fantastic. The, the, the film won the Dorian Award for the documentary, which is kind of the queer Oscars. Um, we toured uh, all around the country with it. It's now uh, available exclusively on Shudder, um, which I'm sure that most of your listeners uh, have an account. Uh, so, so yeah, please, uh, please give it a watch. I'm really uh, proud of the film. It's more than just a fan film. It's, it's really about kind of mapping out this period of Hollywood in the 1980s. Um, through looking at this movie. And I think it's also important to note that a lot of the, the freedoms as LGBT people that we have nowadays started with the mm-hmm. 80s and 90s and these these men and women who suffered through the AIDS crisis and, yep. and really provided what we have today. I think a lot of my generation for queer people forget sure. forget about that, you know? Um, Absolutely. I tell so, people, um, I, I knew what AIDS was before I knew what gay was. Um, yeah. When I was growing up, and the only reason, the only way I understood what a gay person was is that they were somebody who had AIDS. That's mm-hmm. that's literally how I learned what gay was, and they're so intrinsically linked. And you know, I, but I think it points to the broader trend in thinking about the horror genre in the eighties. You know, how did the horror genre respond to the AIDS crisis? It's not just Nightmare on Street too. You know, the vampire film comes back after kind of going away in the seventies. Suddenly, it's back in the eighties. And instead of looking like Romanian aristocracy, they look like the Lost Boys. You know, they look like um, a new wave new queer band. They look like Dead or Alive. You know, hmm. uh, and that's not a mistake. That suddenly the vampire looks back and he looks like a very queer young man. You know what I mean? So none, none, none of that's an accident, right? Fright Night, Lost Boys. Suddenly right. the vampire looks very queer. <laughs> yeah. So Spring Queen. Um, that was a, was a really fantastic thing. Um, you know, I contacted them when they were still filming, and originally I was going to have them come to my class to, to talk to my students, and I found a pocket of money, brought them to campus, and we filmed my classroom and interviewed me, and all, all that makes it into the documentary, which is, is pretty fantastic. Um, so it's great to have that kind of archive uh, of that class as well, you know. And then <clears throat> that film actually got me my next gig, which is um, uh, on Shutter, documentary on queer horror. Uh, from the same people who did Horror Noir, uh, which is a fantastic documentary about African-Americans uh, in the horror genre. 
Um, they've optioned ones on women in the horror genre and queerness uh, in the horror genre. So I was very excited. I'm going to be, uh, they end up getting Clive Barker. So there's there's a childhood dream to be in the same film with Clive Barker. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that that's uh, definitely something to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so that's that's all really exciting. Uh, and work I'm doing now, I'm writing um, about um, youth cinema, but I'm actually writing more about um, Dylan Hughes at the moment. <laughs> so still thinking about rebellious youth, but not quite in the horror genre. Hey, I mean, it, it's all interesting though. I mean, I, I one thing that I love about the horror genre is that a lot of times it, it kind of helps you attune yourself to, you know, the the subtext and all of that in in other pieces of literature and you know like a lot of times you know you you can almost like you know learn how to pick apart Mm -hmm. you know a piece of literature or a piece of film through Mm -hmm. horror because sometimes it's easier to to look at at the symbols and things like that and then it and then you can you know apply it to other things yeah yeah because the the symbols become so visualized i guess and yeah Mm -hmm. i think of like how the slasher is um, it, it is kind of a film about anxiety around rape, and a lot of the female gothic is about anxiety around rape. And what Nightmare on Street does is it puts the glove up through her bathwater and in between her legs, and it's making it very literal, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's what the female gothic has always been about, right? It's about protecting your 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 body, essentially. And and like you know, even at a at a more basic level. So I I teach uh, just high school um, like senior English. Um, and two of the pieces of, of literature that I teach pretty early on would be The Inferno and Dr. Faustus. And so it's really fun to kind of play with, you know, hell and demons and all that stuff and, and just kind of like get across these very basic ideas of like, you know, very black and white, good and evil kind of ideas. And then, you know, when it plays with moral ambiguity, it's really easy to see when it does that. And then, you know, make them take steps toward the more complicated, more subtle pieces. All right, okay. well, should we dive into Cabin in the Woods? Talk a little bit about a, right. a movie movie. The lambs have passed to the gate. They are come to the killing floor. Get this party started! I seriously believe something weird is going on. to stay together. This isn't right. We should split up. Yeah, good idea. Really? Let's do it. Um, this is one that I teach in my horror genre class. It's uh, my week on kind of postmodern horror. Um, I could use Scream. I choose to use uh, Cabin in the Woods instead because I think it's doing more interesting things with postmodernism. And I think it's a film that just works on its own merits, which which I I, I always appreciate. Um, I take it you guys are fans. Oh yes, <laughs> we we will discuss. So Cabin in the Woods came out in 2011. Director is Drew Goddard, and then the writers are Joss Whedon, of course. Ever bless his name. Um, and then Drew Goddard also wrote. Uh, brief plot synopsis: This is a fairly straightforward film in some regard. Uh, You have a group of uh, what are presumed to be college kids that are going on a weekend trip to this cabin in the woods, uh, which quickly spirals out of of control as they go into the basement of the cabin, 
and find a variety of these weird, creepy, not a cult, but very dark, mysterious objects, uh, which then results in a series of monster attacks and snowball kind of spirals out of control and there's death and murder. And, and we learned that behind all of this is this very kind of spooky shadow organization pulling the strings behind this. And, and it's not isolated to just the cabin. It's a worldwide thing that this organization is being controlled by these quote unquote old gods that if they don't perform some sort of human sacrifice, that the old gods will destroy the world. So that, that is a very crude uh, explanation of the movie. I, I more want to focus on, you know, what's good about this film because it is fairly known. I think a lot of people have seen this movie. And correct me if I'm wrong, Nathaniel, there. Uh, but it is very common. It was on Netflix for years. Yeah, and and it was, I mean, you know, with, with Joss Whedon's name attached to it, a lot of people were drawn to it, you know, right around the time of The Avengers. And, you know, people who were fans of Buffy or fans of Firefly were like, oh, Joss Whedon. <laughs> that's, that's what drew me to it initially. <laughs> yeah, so one, one thing that I love about the film is it is daring enough to do a genre swap on its audience, mm-hmm. uh, which is generally something you want to do, right? It, it's bad financial, it makes bad financial sense to promise your audience one movie but to give them a different one, you know? And I love that this film is willing to do that. It's a film that, and in fact, the advertising campaign feels very much like a straightforward um, slasher, and it's genre shifts into something more like um, a dystopian thriller. It, it genre shifts into something more like uh, Hunger Games, I would say, is ultimately kind of the film that we get. Uh, all the while being very meta about uh, the slasher genre itself. For sure. Absolutely. And I, it's a, such a classic and iconic story, especially where, you know, we have something as Evil Dead, the almost iconic Cabin in the Woods story, whereas horror fans yeah. were watching this and we're getting excited because it's, you know, it's going to be this cabin. We're going to have the the Deadites back and and all of this Kentarian demon and, and we know what's mm-hmm. coming. And then all of a sudden it's thrown on its head and it kind of takes your breath away in some regards. Because again, we're, we're recognizing these, these shout outs to horror fans and then all of a sudden it says, eh, now we're going to do something different. Well, it's not as if we still don't have like the puppet master kind of narrative in horror. Right. And so it's really interesting. For me, at least the stage that takes you along where you're like, oh, okay, it's not Friday the 13th or Evil Dead. Oh, okay, so it's like Saw now. Okay, now I get this movie. (laughs) <laughs> and it keeps switching the rules to you, right? And and I love that about it, um, is that you can't place it in a genre. Uh, or, or it's hard for you as you watch it the first time to even know what kind of movie you're in because the rules keep changing on you. It reminded me a lot of Hereditary. And Daniel and I joke that our mm-hmm. podcast is essentially a Hereditary fan base. Um, oh, no. But you, you see, you see Hereditary's, campaign and advertising and you thought it was going to be this psychological thriller and have something to do with genetics and this crazy grandma and then it flips it on its head and it does it in a way that doesn't feel forced or contrived it felt very fluid and i i think what is cool about cabin in the woods is essentially it takes it even one step further and has the balls to stay we created everything. Every monster story in the world and in history is because of this 
organization trying to protect humanity. And I, I don't know. I just think that's awesome. Hey, I'll tell you what else is really ballsy about this film is that uh, directors know that, like, once you make a movie for a studio, you don't own it anymore. They can franchise it out. They can make video, uh, uh, like, direct-to-video sequels, anything they want. This film literally washes any possibility of a sequel, <laughs> uh, which I think is ballsy, right? Because you got uh, modern filmmaking with an eye towards franchise should never do that. And to kind of franchise this film, you would have to do a prequel or something. So mm-hmm. uh, I love that about the movie. I find it so ballsy that it quashes its own potential for sequels. Yeah, it just ends with the world getting destroyed by some giant Lovecraftian god. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the young person saying, well, we've had our shot at it. Maybe it's time. <laughs> Maybe we should burn the word to the ground. And I mean, <laughs> is it is it such a bad idea with how 2020 is going right now? <laughs> Yes and no. I mean, I get it, but also I, I think that that was how a lot of the Bernie bros justified their vote for Trump. Okay. Right? Wow. Um, way, way to make me feel bad about my comment now. Thanks, Andy. <laughs> uh, they were casting that anarchy, you know what I mean? No, that's a very good point. It's a very kind of tragic but very fair point. <laughs> they love the generational politics of this film, you know. So when I teach um, this film, my students have already seen Texas Chainsaw Massacre, they've seen Nightmare on Elm Street, and so they're, they're pretty well-versed in the slasher. And one thing I point out to them, with um, starting with Texas Chainsaw Massacre, is that really Texas Chainsaw Massacre started as a, a Vietnam War protest film, right? It is about young people coded as hippies, the end of the age of Aquarius, we've retrograded Saturn, or Saturn and it's about young people worried that the, the past is going to eat them alive you know, that they're going to be sent to the slaughterhouse of the Vietnam War to fix a war that their parents created. And that's really what the slasher is about overall. It's about generational conflict. It's about young bodies paying for the mistakes of their parents. And, and, and over and over again, it kind of narrates that, that, like, our parents fuck something up, and we're the ones who have this sort of senseless violence that we have to deal with. Uh, and the people coming out. And it's interesting that Kevin the Woods genre shifts into Hunger Games because Hunger Games is kind of saying the same thing, right? It's about young bodies paying for the wars that their parents created that they have no connection to whatsoever. But what's the difference is that in the 80s, yes, I'm paying for the mistakes of my parents. Um, however, the thing I'm fighting, it has a form, right? I can fight Jason Voorhees in my dreams. I can fight Freddy. Um, I can at least identify the things that's killing me. But if you look at the major sort of young bodies being picked off films of the modern era, uh, franchises like Final Destination, uh, Saw, Hunger Games. Um, it's that thing that I'm fighting doesn't even seem to have a form anymore, right? Final Destination, I'm fighting fate <laughs> that ultimately can't be fought because it, there's nothing to fight against. It's so large and institutionalized and cumbersome that I can't even wrap my head around the thing that's killing me. I don't know. So I, I think this modern version of the slasher really is about young people cynicism towards actually changing their environment, changing the world. Um, certainly they have cynicism towards the power of revelation, right? In the 80s, we had like something like They Live. It's like if you could just broadcast the truth to the American public, then we could solve all the problems. It's pretty confident in the power of revelation. You know, I, do I need to 
do I need to inform people that the president is lying to me? Do I need to inform people that we went to war under unjust purposes? Uh, do I need to inform people that the government's probably listening in on my cell phone? No. You know, there's, that, that information is already out there, but there's nothing you can do about it. And that's kind of like the modern slasher. That's this, what I'm calling millennial horror, is this idea that you're being murdered, but the thing that's killing you is too big for you to fight. Yeah, even when you know all of the answers, you're still screwed. Right. And that's happened in the woods, right? They literally drop into the control center uh, of this thing. So it's, they have they have discovered the truth, right? But it doesn't matter because it's so codified. It's so systemic that you can't fight it except to just burn it to the ground. Yeah, it, it, yeah the only way to win is to lose big. <laughs> right, right, right. And, and it's so interesting because I, I feel this from a lot of the kind of youth protests where it's not like, let's reform the system. No, let's, let's defund it. Let's burn it to the ground. Let's start over, right? The thing is rotten to the core. I, I, I didn't even ever begin to think of, of this film at that level, but, you know, I, I am getting a, a whole new appreciation for it as we're talking about it. So Yeah, yeah. And conscious or not, a lot of modern horror is thinking about this, about, you know, it, we can't just reveal the thing. It's, it's, it's how do we even fight this thing um, that, that, that seems so enormous, right, um, for us to tackle. I also think that this film is a response to torture porn um, and the kind of, like, hostile type films. It's a movie about what it means to watch torture dispassionately, right? It's a film about the detached spectator making bets on other people's misery. Because um, that's what we do in movies, right? Um, we uh, People get tortured because we pay money for it, right? If we didn't pay money for it, people wouldn't get tortured on screen. Uh, <laughs> so we are kind of always wagering. Uh, we are always using our money to make more torture. And I think that this is Josh Whedon's statement about, like, there's, there's something wrong about this, um, about um, the ability to to watch torture dispassionately. It's you're kind of and, blowing and, my mind. Of... Go ahead, Nathaniel. I'm just in awe. <laughs> <laughs> well, and something I think that is so interesting about that, though, with this film, is that it doesn't come out and totally say that that is wholly wrong. In yeah. that, like we you know, see these characters, you know, that are that are placing it as the, the, the are the ones who are, you know, pulling the strings and, you know, are are this shadow organization. You know, we have, you know, Bradley Whitford's character and I can't remember the other main guy. But yeah, they're all they're they're funny. We we enjoy watching them. We enjoy almost kind of looking at yeah, essentially ourselves in this like dark mirror, but it's in a way like we we still kinda of like them. Like and it, you know, something that we talked about, um, Max and I before we started recording was that, like, in many ways, the Shadow Organization is kind of our favorite part of the show because, like, it's funny and it's, it, it's, it's, you know, they're they're kind of charming even though they are murdering people. And so it's kind of interesting to see it through that lens of, you know, like, yeah, this is saying that this is wrong, but also yeah. at the end of the day, we we also get entertainment from kind of seeing our as these monsters. And, and I think it, 
that hits it on its head, Nathaniel, and and I think it relates a lot to what Andy was saying about this kind of hopeless, daunting monster that we can never defeat. And at the end of the day, sometimes we work for that monster. You know, mm-hmm. me in particular, I work very closely with the FDA, and sometimes I don't agree with anything that they do, but because I have to make a living, I have to do what the monster says. And so I, I think you've elevated this movie to a, a whole new level here, Andy, for at least me, and looking at it as a kind of a reflection of society and, and how sometimes the monster does win, no matter what we do, the monster wins. Absolutely. And I love that the character who gets it right in the film, figures it out, is the, the stoner, right? <laughs> yeah. um, who is normally dismissed, right? But I, I think this film is saying, uh, we're all not being paranoid enough. <laughs> right? <You know? laughs> paranoid, like the stoner. Um, and I find that both hilarious and also really kind of fascinating. Because, you know, this film does have, a, I feel like, a kind of moral center, and that is the um, the African-American guard who is not part of the system and is asking questions about, well, why do you do these things? Because I, I think as a film about the racial conflict, you know, they get to the end and they said, look, you have to do this ritual. We've always done this ritual. It needs to happen. And no one's really questioning why. And I think this is, this is really kind of the voice of the younger generation saying, well, well just because we've, kept, we've done things for a long time, that doesn't mean that they're right. You know, we need to question these, these sort of taken for granted ideas that really kind of undergird um, our civilization. So I guess along those lines, um, I'm, I'm really curious to see if there are things about the film that you don't like as much. I, I personally have a few things that kind of threw me out of the film in, in some ways. Yeah. That, and, and so, yeah, I guess I can kind of kick it off. Like, one thing I, I didn't love about the film was, you know, it, it presents to us very early on, you know, a lot of these really interesting you know, potential ways that they could, you know, have a, a monster that's chasing them around this cabin, right? You know, we have mm-hmm. basically Hellraiser, you know, like a puzzle <laughs> box. We have, you know, even, you know, a, a mermaid. We have all of these, you know, cool different things. And then the thing uh-huh. that they end up doing is the zombie hillbilly family. To me... I felt like, you know, the the big ideas I really liked in the film, but when it came down to, you know, a lot of the action of the film, I instantly kind of became bored because I'm like, I've, I've seen this. I've seen this so many times that I didn't care <laughs> as soon as it became that family. And I was like, oh, okay. Like, and, and so when it had all the interesting monsters at the very end of the film, we get three uh-huh. seconds of them. And so to yeah, me, yeah. I, I felt like it was almost a shame that they went with the really strong stereotypical monster because I had a hard time caring enough to get to the really inter- interesting stuff that happens in the last act of the film. Right. I mean, this is always the interesting thing about a genre, right, is that it needs to be it needs to be the same movie that we know but slightly different, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so the tightrope that all genre cinema walks of being familiar and innovative, I, I think is really interesting. Um, I agree with you that I wish we would have had some of those more interesting um, sort of creatures. But I think the ones that I enjoyed are the ones that were just kind of ridiculous, like the merman, you know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I guess I think the, the sort of generic nature of the, the, the killers was supposed to be that kind of red herring that kept you in the supernatural slasher for a while, maybe. I don't know. I don't have a really good answer for that. 
but I understand the critique uh, for sure. And for me, to piggyback along that, Nathaniel, I think uh, I, I agree with his his idea that we the zombies are kind of a eh monster. I wanted the demons. Cause I'm all about that. I, I like I like that type of wishes and then sexy wishes. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Today, if we were making this film today, it would probably be uh, murder hornets and uh, mess gators. So <laughs> yeah. Or just people not wearing masks in public. (laughs) (laughs) Or people arguing why they shouldn't wear masks in public. (laughs) Uh, I I really enjoyed the stereotype characters of, like, the the hot girl and the the jock. Uh, And I feel like I understand where they were kind of the first to go, the the hormone, or not the hormones, the pheromones that they were putting in the air and whatnot. Like, that, that, of course, made sense. But I thought they were fun <laughs> characters, and I would have really appreciated yeah. to see a little bit more time with them. I, I think they killed them off a bit prematurely for me. Right, they right. didn't give them enough time to play in that space, I think. Exactly. Mm-hmm. One of the, the issues I think with the film is, is something I feel about all kind of um, political comedy uh, is whether or not um, comedy makes the, comedy helps us critique the thing. Or does it, or is it like a Kafka-esque type laughter where we're like, oh, but what are you going to do except laugh at it, right? That's my worry with a lot of this comedy that says, you know, like the government controls are removed. Ha, 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 what are you going to do about it? Um, I feel like that um, deters us from political action more than it kind of gets us thinking about, um, it, it kind of codifies the status quo rather than making us think, no, we should try and change this. I, I agree. Okay. I, I, I think if the comedy was more, I'm trying to think of a, a good word for it, just nasty, I guess. If if, mm. if if it were a little bit more cynical and a little bit more obviously cynical, uh-huh. you know, if if if, it, if this were a little bit more a modest proposal versus, you know, what yeah. it is, I think it would have more punch and people would realize, like, hey, there is more to this film than just a fun yeah. kind of meta exploration of horror. I agree. Yeah. I, I, I think the level of comedy does take away from the overall picture of what they're trying to say. And I and I think that's very apparent after Andy you kind of helped us realize this much bigger importance of the movie. Because uh, mm-hmm. people will see it and they see, you know, oh the you know, the horny jock and that's funny, let's laugh at that and not really dissect it for what it is. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, I, I think of, like, a, a similar film that schools a kind of meta moment with its audience and says, you know, basically, you make this happen is a funny game. You know, when he breaks up her floor, he says, look, you want me to stop? You want me to keep torturing her? You know, it's up to you, audience member. That is the part for me that's much more jarring and definitely gets me thinking. The argument to, like, putting political commentary in comedy, though, is that you're going to reach a wider audience. You know, right. that there right. that. The person who wouldn't go see Funny Games and be challenged by that film would probably go see Cabin in the Woods. And maybe maybe they do get challenged, but in a way that is more subtle. All right. Well, should we kind of bring it to a close, maybe rate this movie? Ooh. What's your, what's your system? Uh, so we, so we rate a movie based on screens and then what we call crowns because uh, we are the Scream Kings. Uh, so screens would be a, a how scary you saw this movie. One being a Disney movie, ten being absolutely <laughs> horrifying. 
Uh, it is a scary Disney movie. That's true. Watcher, Watcher in the Woods still has terrified me to this day. Oh, that is a terrifying movie. That one really terrified me too. There was another one that came out um, during this. Oh, let me tell you this because this has totally changed my whole thinking on Disney live action movies. It was once on a panel about childhood and film, and someone was doing a paper on some presented research on Escape to Witch Mountain which to me was like the most innocuous film I think I've ever seen. And she talked a bit about it, how um, the young girl, Tila, she had to protect her star box from a bunch of men that wanted to take her box. Oh, no. And all in her virginity. And I was like, oh, fuck, it is. Man, I did not ever pick up on that the gazillion times I watched that movie as a kid. I love Escape to Witch Mountain. Yes, same. Same. <laughs> You're blowing our minds here, Andy. Let's just rate the dumb movie, okay? <laughs> <laughs> and then Crowns is where, like, how well crafted the movie is. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah the like, quality of the film overall. Yeah, I gotcha. And, um, and these okay. are, yeah, both on a 10 scale. Oh, a 10 scale, okay. So I don't think the film's very scary, but I don't think it really needs to be. So I'll put it, like, at a 5 in terms of, of, um, of scares. Um, it has a couple jumps, but uh, I think we're more entertained by the violence than we are sort of horrified. Um, in terms of, like, craft, um, I think it's a really hard movie to make, you know, that is a better critique within the horror genre that also plays with uh, comedy uh, and, and parody. So I'm going to say an eight round. All right. I gave it a three as far as screams. Uh, I don't ever remember being scared at all in the movie. I, I agree with you that I don't think that was the intent. Um, mm -hmm. But as far as cramps go, I also agree. I would give it an eight. Uh, I think it's a very well done movie, especially for horror fans, just because it, it does speak our language um, mm -hmm. in a very particular way that still is understandable right. by those who don't love the horror genre. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then I, as far as screens, yeah, I'm also going to give it a three. It, isn't trying to scare us that much. I 100% I agree with what you both said. Uh, and then as far as crowns go, I am give it a seven and a half. Uh, I, I feel like it's very ambitious, and I love a lot of the, the especially the big picture ideas, but, again, I kind of get bogged down a little bit in some of the, uh, you know, choices of, of having zombie hillbillies chase them around for a while. I just kind of stopped caring for 20 minutes on the opening day in the theater, which is not a great thing. So <laughs> wait. What monster did you want to see? Did we, did we say? Like, literally any other one. <laughs> I was just so, I think, I don't know. I, I just seen so many zombie things for the last, you know, 15 years at that point that I was like, well, just anything else, please. <laughs> yeah, I would have loved to see the, uh, the knockoff Cenobites. That would have been a good movie for me. Yeah, yeah. The, they they look real cool with like the weird blades coming out of their heads and. Mm -hmm. Oh, by the way, um, I, as an adult, I, I kind of dawned on me that um, Hellraiser is basically all about uh, female uh, masturbation. Um, she's literally digitally manipulating her box, which opens up this world of pain and pleasure. Oh my god. Mm. Yeah. Okay, so we're going to make you an uh, honorary third screen king, and you can just be on every one of our episodes. Just like <laughs> drop and these. Lower mind on every movie. <laughs> yeah, right? If you guys have a guest uh, now and then, I'd be happy to. That's really fun. I'd yeah. love to have the, uh, the, the, the third Olsen twin. That'd be great. <laughs> Excellent.
Um, so one thing I, I, I want to actually ask that is uh, about this film is, would you like to see Cabin in the Woods in a sort of different, you know, sort of like, you know, see it franchised in a way? Because to me, I felt like a lot of my favorite moments were just like a little like kind of throwaway gags about like the Asian schoolgirls that are also going through a ritual and are dealing with the ghost. And so to me, I think this could actually really work well as a mini series. Yeah. I agree. I actually, I would love to see it as like a TV show where each week it's a different group that takes a different article. And I would love it if it went international. That would be really fascinating to kind of explore genre conventions in different, you know, national cinemas. I think it's fantastic. Yeah, I would be all about that. I would watch the Japanese schoolgirl episode in a heartbeat. Our last segment that we typically do on an episode here, Andy, is what we call Staying Spooky. Uh, just some movie or book or podcast even, anything that you've consumed in the last little while that really spoke to you from a horror genre standpoint. And I can start here to maybe give you a moment to think back. For me, what I really enjoyed this last week has been Netflix's uh, remake of the Unsolved Mysteries series. Uh, I grew up on this show. Uh, it was on constantly, and it was really, for me, one of the big gateways into the horror genre. Um, mm -hmm. I, Growing up, my room was in the basement, and I had a window well, and I could see out into my neighbor's driveway, and they would come home late at night, and the lights would pass through my window, and I would immediately think of all of the unsolved mystery stories that I knew I was going to get kidnapped or abducted, or there was a demon coming to get me, and it was just outrageous. So seeing it done so well by Netflix, I, I have been loving it. I haven't finished it, but they do a good job. Definitely check it out. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't know until yesterday that it was new episodes of Unsolved Mysteries because I, I think they more or less used the same logo. And I just thought it was it was now like syndicated uh, in Netflix, and it and like humored me that you know it was trending and all these people were watching it. I just think out of sheer nostalgia, but uh, <laughs> no, I have to check. Uh, so I, I I love that film as well, or I love that show as well. That was uh, that and uh, what's the Emergency Nine One One. I watched all of uh, and I, I got to the point where I, I, on Amazon, you can actually watch the original Unsolved Mysteries. So I throw that on while I work. And <laughs> I feel like they might not hold up uh, as well as, as we hope. You know, they don't, but that's okay. <laughs> yeah, it's just pure nostalgia. Uh, yeah. for sure. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> How about you, Nathaniel? What have you done to stay spooky? Well, other than the real-life horrors of moving, which I just did, which is a giant, miserable slog whenever that happens, um, I have been watching... Yeah, no, I've I, I seen a lot of horror movies that start that way, of, uh, moving into a new house, so... <laughs> yeah, hopefully it doesn't go the route of any of those. Um, yeah. I'll send them home with some white sage, okay. <laughs> just yeah, get rid of all the, the demons. <laughs> Um, but but no, uh, what what I've uh, consumed recently is I I just finished watching season two of What We Do in the Shadows, which you know, is horror adjacent. You know, it's horror comedy. I feel like the second season didn't quite hold up to the first one, um, and you know, and the movie is better than any of the show. But there were some real 
gems of episodes in the second season, um, especially one uh, involving a certain sporting event called the Superb Owl. And, yeah, I, I quite enjoyed that. I watched the first four episodes in the second season, and I didn't find the writing kind of what as the quality I was expecting. Um, but I've heard that it does get better as the season goes on. So I'll, I'll, I'll pick it back up. Fair enough. Fair um, enough. It it was kind of I felt like it was sort of hit or miss throughout the the season. But so how have you been staying spooky? Well, um, you know it's funny. I've been doing um, for 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 friends of mine. I've been doing um, a backyard movie night. Um, started a year ago where uh, every month I show like a, a horror movie that's kind of off the radar. Often it's foreign or independent. And um, as I tell my friends, I watch a lot of horror movies and I watch a lot of shitty ones. But a couple of them are good, and so I like to kind of show those to my friends. Um, when COVID hit, um, I moved it to a virtual um, movie night where we, uh, every Tuesday, watched the movie and then talked about it uh, over Zoom, and that was really fun. Um, I got to discover a lot of really fantastic ones. Um, there's a film on, I believe it's on Hulu, called Little Joe. I don't know if either of you have seen that. Mm-hmm. Um it's a British film that's very much in the vein of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, but um, what they're doing is creating a plant which releases an antidepressant scent, basically. And uh, and so they're they're pushing this plant to market um, as a sort of comforting presence in your home that keeps you calm. But uh, the, the the plant has a will to live and slowly starts to take over people's personalities. But it's a film kind of about a relationship to um, mood stabilizers, right? And asking if we're already kind of making zombies out of ourselves by eliminating these emotional highs and lows that we have. It was a really great film. Um, hmm. And it looks beautiful. It's done in this very cold, antiseptic, almost like Kubrick style. Um, that, that, that really works for this film. So that's fantastic. Um, there's one that came out last year called Baccarat, uh, and I believe it is coming from Argentina. And it's a really interesting hybrid of science fiction and the Western, where um, the, the setup is that if you're a, a wealthy American or European, you can literally pay to have a, Mex- a small Mexican town eliminated from Google, like eliminated from the map so that you can make it a hunting ground for yourself. But in this film, uh, the townspeople fight back. And it's very, very thrilling. So it has that um, saving the town from bandits kind of feel of a Western, but it also feels very science fiction. Uh, it's a really, really great hybrid. Hmm. That one's been really fantastic. Last week, I showed, uh, so I'm back to doing, um, not weekly, um, backyard gatherings for, for, for small groups, but we did um, To Your Last Death um, last week, which is an animated film that came out this year that um, kind of animation style is like uh, Archer, very heavy ink style, very 2D, um, but it's uh, served as a balmy groundhog day where um, a woman and her family get involved in this fall life torture scenario, and she gets to relive the day over and over again in that kind of video game narrative way um, in order to save her family. Really fantastic. Hmm. And it's narr- and, uh, the game master is played by William Shatner. So. Those are all going on my to-watch list. And I know, I'm writing them down. My... <laughs> Andy, do you want to take a moment and let our listeners know where they can 
find you if you are on Instagram, Twitter, anything like that? Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm on Twitter, uh, Andrew Scahill, S-C-A-H-I-L-L, uh, my last name, and I sometimes update it. So um, that, that is a place to find me. Um, I also have a, a website where I am better at updating, and that's uh, A-D-S-C-A-H-I-L-L, A-D-S-C-A-H-I-L-L.com. Awesome. Yeah, definitely well, definitely uh, worth a follow, it sounds like, from our conversation. So, <laughs> Andy, thank you so much. Like we mentioned at the beginning of the episode, this is kind of a – a monumental episode for us being the 50th. So we are just incredibly grateful to have you. You provided some awesome insight. Thank you, thank you, thank you. To do, and I'm honored to be part of the 50th episode. Uh, so thank you very much for thinking of me. Yeah, of course. And, and you know, going forward, if there's any horror movie that you just really want a, a platform to be able to share your thoughts on, just let us know. Right. We'll we'll uh, definitely record with you again. You're, you right. uh, definitely opened our minds, so... Thanks. Well, Nathaniel, uh, Max, thank you very much. Uh, always uh, good to talk to you guys. Happy to do it again. Well, uh, I guess if there's nothing else to say, we could just say, stay spooky. Need even more Scream Kings? Here's our obligatory shameless social media plug. Follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Scream Kings Pod. You could also email us at ScreamKingsPodcast at gmail.com. Help us reach a wider audience of horror fans by leaving a review on iTunes or by sharing a link on social media. You can also support the show by going to patreon.com forward slash Stay spooky.